theme of the studies this this quarter is uh, great questions of the Bible or questions of the Bible, something to that effect. Uh, Simon talked to us last week, at least in part of his presentation, about the nature of questions. What what kind of questions? There are different kinds of questions. But a question is a really good way to draw the reader into or draw the listener into uh, the presentation, what's being presented, and uh, kind of invites him to think along with the speaker. And uh, we've noticed that uh, some, as we've studied various, uh, various subjects. Uh, on s- Saturday morning, a group of us get together and uh, we eat breakfast at IHOP and we have a Bible study. We noticed yesterday the passage concerning the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. I think that might be one of our questions, in fact. Well, Jesus responds with a question on that occasion. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God is love. Why, why, why do you call me good? That's, that's a question. Why, why do you call me good? Why, why does Jesus ask him that question? He's trying to get him to think. I, I think Jesus is trying to get him to think about what he's asking of Jesus. Now, that's not explained to us in that particular passage. I'm just using that as an illustration to show how a question, asking a question, gets the listener to think or uh, encourages the reader to think. Think of the answer. Think of the answer yourself. In that particular passage, Mark uh, chapter 10, I think uh, Jesus is trying to get us along with the rich young ruler, to think about whether Jesus is worthy of the description good. Is he, in fact, good? Good teacher. Is he, in fact, good? Only God is good, he says. So if we think about that and think about the evidence that we're supplied with in the Gospel of Mark and other places, uh, we will conclude, yes, Jesus is, in fact, deserving of that description. He is good. Even if only God is good, Jesus is good because he is God. He's God with us. And so that question invites us, invites us to think and uh, to ponder and to consider. Uh, Some questions are rhetorical. The the answer is expected. Uh, And so the question is not asked uh, to uh, draw information or to acquire information. Uh, The question isn't asked to get the reader to think very seriously about, you know, it could be this answer or that answer. What is the right answer? The the answer is really already understood, and that's the nature of the question today. It's taken from Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, which says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so the judge of all the earth, of course, is God. And so the question is, shall not... God always do right, or shall not God do right? Yes. You know. Again, that's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to that. Um, and that question, in fact, could be stated as a, just a straightforward declarative statement. The judge of all the earth will do right. And it wouldn't change uh, the, uh, the idea at all. So that's our question for today. Genesis 18 and verse 25. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Have you ever worked for anybody or did you ever know anybody or had to, have you ever had to deal with somebody, maybe, maybe especially at work, maybe you had a boss 
that you just didn't know what to expect from on a day-to-day basis. You go, you go to work one day and he's cheerful and he's on top of the world and he's very pleasant and he stops and talks. How are you doing? How's your day? How's your family? And just wonderful to get along with. And then the next day you go in and he's a grump and a grouch and he's hard to get along with and he's hard to work with. He didn't he don't want to spend time talking to you and he sure doesn't want to entertain your questions or what you might have to ask or uh, doesn't want you to come to, to him. You may, you may have known somebody like that, or you may have worked with somebody like that, but uh, maybe you can just uh, imagine what that would be like. If you've had that experience, or you can imagine that experience, you, you would know that, I, I just don't know how to interact with this person. I, I don't know if he's going to receive me and entertain my questions or entertain my suggestions, or, or I don't know if he's just going to get angry with me and, and fly off and... I don't know how to deal with him. I don't know how to act, act toward him. Because his actions are inconsistent. One day he's very pleasant. The next day he's a grunt and he's angry. And so that just, the result of that is that I, I don't know how to interact with, with this person. Because his actions are, are inconsistent. Well, what this passage suggests to us is that God's actions are always consistent. And so if you have a boss and he's always pleasant, he's always willing to listen. And he may not always agree, but he's always, you can always work with him. And so you know he's proven that to be that way over the course of time. And so you go to him and you have something to say or an issue to take up with him. You, you know how to, you know what to expect and you know how to deal with him. His actions are always consistent. And so that's one of the points of this lesson, that, that we can be confident as we approach God. That we, we know how he's going to act. We know how he's going to react. Because there are certain principles within his nature, within his character. There are certain qualities that govern his actions. I was reading this morning from, in just uh, before it came out, from 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. This has to do with Eli and Samuel and the, uh, the visions that Samuel was uh, privy to. Verse 21, the very last verse of that chapter says, The Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God revealed himself By the word of the Lord, by his word. And so God might reveal himself in different ways to people through time. uh, At a burning bush or a vision or a dream or something like that. But but notice that this this says God revealed himself by by his word. Well, that's what we're going to, you know, that's, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to see that God is revealing himself to us. Not through a vision, not, not in a dream. Not in a burning bush, but by his word here. We have his word here. And we're going to learn about God as he reveals his character to us through what he says. That's, that's very important. A lot of times people, they, you know, they want the dream. They want the vision. They want the spectacular. They, they want the immediate uh, sort of communication with God. They want to hear his voice in the night. And, and, and they end up neglecting God's revelation of himself in the word. 
So this, this plays a, a, a huge role in learning about God and growing to know Him, getting to know Him, and as a consequence, understanding how to respond and react to Him and, and interact with Him. And so, let's go to this passage in Genesis chapter 18. We're going to set the context a little bit, and then we're going to talk about this idea of God doing right. In Genesis chapter 18, God has decided to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. I'm, I'm going to assume that most of us know that story in the Bible, Genesis 18 and 19, and so we won't have to go into a great deal of detail about that. But because of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, God has decided to destroy it. So Genesis 18 verse 16 says, The men who came to visit Abraham rose up from there, looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and to him all nations of the earth will be blessed. I've chosen him, and so forth. And so verse 20 says, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed grave. Their sin is exceeding the grave. I will go down now and see if they have entirely uh, done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so... I'm going to go down, I'm going to find out, and if things are as I think they are, I'm going to destroy the city, uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, Abraham knew that his nephew Lot was living in Sodom. And he knew that if the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, that Lot and his family would be destroyed along, along with the cities. So Abraham was, was very concerned. And so in verse 22, we find Abraham entering into sort of what I, what I call a negotiation with God. He's negotiating with God. And, and so in verse 22, and, and, or verse 23, Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Is, God, is that what you plan to do? Do you plan to destroy the righteous with the wicked? The righteous don't deserve to be destroyed. The wicked, they, they may deserve to be destroyed, but how can you destroy the righteous and the wicked together? That, that just doesn't seem just. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the whole place on their account. Now that would be a small a small portion of the total population. Would it 50? I don't know what the population of Sodom was, but 50 would be a pretty small proportion, I feel sure. And God agrees. If you can find 50, I'll spare I'll spare the place. Abraham replied, now, now here's the negotiation. I venture to speak to the Lord, although I, I'm but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I'll, I'll not destroy it if I find 45 there. Now, yeah, so why, why 50? Let's, let's reduce it by five. And for the sake of five people, you're going to destroy it. Okay, all right. For 45 people, I'll spare the city. 
And if that negotiation continues, suppose, verse 29, suppose there are 40 found there. And, and then, verse 30, maybe there be 30, then 20 in verse 31. In verse 32, then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this one. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And as soon as uh, he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Well, I think we know the outcome of the story that apparently not even 10 righteous people could be found there. There there was Lot. Uh, There was Lot's wife who had the opportunity to leave the city. That, you know, that turned into disaster. And then there were Lot's two daughters, and their character is questionable, as it turns out. And so, so not even ten righteous people could be found in Sodom, and the city was destroyed. The leading idea in the passage, as far as we're concerned this morning, is that God will do justice, that God will do what's right. He'll do what is just. In this case, he would not destroy the righteous, those who fear him and obey him, along with the wicked, those who ignore him. To do so would be an act of injustice. That's Abraham's point. To to destroy the righteous and treat them as if they were wicked, that would be an act of injustice. And surely God is not going to do what is unjust. And so God goes to great lengths to save the righteous. And in this story, we can see that God acts according to the the quality of justice. But we also see his mercy in, in this story as well. So that in the final analysis, God preserves the righteous, Lot and his family, by rescuing them out of the city before it's destroyed. And so we see the justice of God highlighted in the destruction of the city. These people, it's just to destroy them because of their ungodly character. We also see his justice in the preservation of the righteous, Lot and his his family, his two daughters at least. In Genesis chapter 6, we see something similar to that in the days of Noah, don't we? And so in the days of Noah, there was a world that was full of evil and full of, of wickedness. God said... Uh, It says that God was sorry that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him at his heart. Said uh, uh, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually speaking of of human beings. And then in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And Noah walked with God. And so you see God, God's justice at work in destroying the wicked and preserving the righteous. And that's, that's a just way to... Act toward toward men. In the book of Second Peter, we can see Peter commenting on these things. Second Peter chapter two. He begins in in verse four by talking about angels. When they sinned, God cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. But he rescued righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, 
felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And so God, God is going to do right, isn't he? God will do right. God will, uh, and this is just uh, sort of a summary of what we've, what we've seen from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But uh, God is going to do right. He'll, he'll preserve the righteous and he'll deal with them in a righteous or just way. And he'll punish the wicked and deal with them in a just way as well. All right. So let's, let's continue. Let's, let's take that idea and let's progress just a little bit. What, what does it mean to, to do right? That's the quotation here uh, in, in Genesis 18, verse 25. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What, what does it mean to do right? Um, other versions read a little bit differently. The ESV says, uh, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So we've, we've used that term in our discussion up to this point to to do what is just or to do right. The New American Standard Bible says, will not the judge of all the earth do justly? And so to do justice, to do right, to do what is right or what is just, those, those are the ideas. So we're just going to do a little word study uh, this morning for a few minutes. I know there's a lot of information here, but uh, just bear with me, turn from place to place, and I think we'll get some insight into this idea of doing right or doing justice. So let's go to the book of Psalms, the 89th Psalm, and we'll look at verses, uh, verse 14. Actually, the 89th Psalm, verse 14, and in the next passage, the 97th Psalm in verse 2, say the same thing. So Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. And so... Righteous, look at the qualities that are all bound together here in God. Righteousness and justice and loving kindness and truth. And so those are qualities that are found within God's character, that are inherent within God's character. Righteousness, justice, loving kindness, and truth. And then skip over to the book of Jeremiah and look at Jeremiah chapter 9. And you see these qualities associated there. And so... The point is that the word to do right or to do justice or to be just is, is used together very frequently in the Bible with righteousness as if they were synonyms. And so Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 24, we'll begin in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me. He, so notice that. He understands and knows me. So he knows me. He, he understands my character. And so let him boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. Justice and righteousness. Those two qualities appear together and are linked together over and over and over again. In the scriptures. And so God is going to do what's just, or He's going to execute or administer justice in the world and righteousness. Righteousness, as we've said before, is what conforms to God's standard of right and wrong. And so God is always going to act in accordance with His standard of right and wrong. Now, we don't always do that. Sometimes we know something is wrong, and yet we do it anyway. 
And so sometimes we know that we ought to do this and we neglect to do it. So we don't always act in a manner consistent with our own standard of right and wrong. But God always acts in a manner consistent with his standard of right and wrong. So that's justice and righteousness. Look at a few other passages. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. Let's look at that passage. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. So God has invited Solomon to ask you know, to ask for anything, ask whatever you will, I'll give it to you. Remember that passage? That's First uh, Kings chapter 3, verse 9. Solomon prays, Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was a pleasing thing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, Because you've asked for this thing and not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor have asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. I've done according to your words and more. And so give me a discerning heart, the ability to discern between good and evil. And so God comments on that. Since you've asked for a a heart that knows justice, I'll give it to you. Since you've asked for a wise and discerning heart so that you'll be able to discern good and evil. Uh, the ability to understand justice. I'll give that to you. So, so notice that. The connection between justice and knowing good from evil. And so to do justice, we have to know what's evil so we can decide against that. And we have to know what's good in order to opt for that. Look at the book of Isaiah chapter 1. You see these ideas linked together there as well. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The previous verse says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove evil, the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do good. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Again, the idea of The ability to discern between good and evil is necessary to justice. God's justice is associated with grace and compassion and loving kindness, goodness, truth, and these other qualities of God. Let's look at some of those passages. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. Isaiah 30 verse 18. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him. God wants to have compassion on you. Why is that? He's a God of justice. That's why. God longs to... uh, uh, to, He's waiting on how to have compassion on you. To be gracious to you. Because He's a God of justice. And so justice linked together with things like compassion and grace. And then these other qualities as well. I want to just... Won't look at all these passages, I don't guess, but do want to look at a couple of them. The 25th Psalm, look at that one. The 25th Psalm, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Just as we read through this, just notice all of these qualities that are bound up in God's character. Let's just begin in verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. 
For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion, your loving kindness, for they have been from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. To those who keep his covenant and his testimonies, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. You know, the name, for your name's sake, for the name stands for the person, for your sake, stands for the character of the person, for the sake of your own character, your loving kindness, your compassion, your truth, your justice, your mercy, pardon me. And so he's appealing to God based on God's own character. I want to skip over these other passages, I suppose. They say uh, a lot of the, the same thing. The next point, God in exercising justice alleviates the oppression of the weak by the strong. Let's look at the 103rd Psalm. So we've noticed that, maybe you've noticed that already in some of the passages we've read, that those who are oppressed because God is a God of justice, He, he lifts them up. He comes to their aid. He wants to benefit them. And so the 103rd Psalm and verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. And so there's the idea of righteousness. Remember we talked about how justice and righteousness are linked together. The Lord performs righteous deeds to those who are oppressed. Look at the 140th Psalm in verse 12. The 140th Psalm, verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright will dwell in your presence. I know that God is going to execute justice for the poor. And so that's that just, you know, that uh, flows out of or emanates from the character of God and the just character of God to... Uh, to attend to the needs of the poor and to exercise justice for the poor. Well, let's look at another one of these passages. The 146th Psalm and verse 7. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. And so you can see that this is not an isolated passage, but throughout the scriptures we see God especially attentive to the needs of the poor and those who are oppressed and those who are without. And sometimes that occurs because they're taken advantage of by wealthy and powerful people. And so these people are poor and oppressed. And so God is interested in doing justice. And so he attends to them. He understands their plight. Jeremiah chapter 33 tells us that Jeremiah is telling us, telling the people of his day, that the Messiah is going to come. And when he does, he's going to execute justice and righteousness. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall ex- execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Well, that's not surprising, is it? And so God is a just God and he acts according to his own standard of righteousness. And so we would expect his Messiah to administer justice and righteousness as well. 
And so the passage before us, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, that's the passage that I'm, I'm referring to there. The passage before us suggests that Abraham expected God to be what we would call fair. That's just, that's, that's fair. I've tried to avoid using that word, although I kind of had a hard time this morning at some points uh, resisting the temptation because I wanted to save it till this, till this time. God is going to do what's fair. That's what, that's what it means. He's going to do what's just. He's going to act justly. He's going to do what's right. He's going to be fair with all people. It wouldn't be fair for God to destroy those who don't deserve it. That, that wouldn't be fair, would it? To, to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. To treat the righteous in the same way that he treats the unrighteous. And so Abraham appeals to God on, on that basis. Remember when you were in school and a uh, teacher gets mad at the class and somebody in the class is, is misbehaving, does something wrong. And so the teacher says, she or he doesn't know who did it. And so she says, okay, the whole class has to stay after school. Today. I don't know if they stay after school anymore, but that's what that's was punishment in my day. The whole class is stay. And you go, that's not fair. It's not fair. I didn't do anything. In a way, it's not fair, is it? Just to punish everybody because this one or this one or this one, and maybe all three together did something that was against the rules. But since she doesn't have omniscience, you know, she doesn't know everything. She just said, okay, everybody's going to be punished. God, God is going to do what's fair. We don't always do what's fair. God is going to always do what's fair, what's right, and what's just. And we can appeal to God on that basis. That's what Abraham does. I know you will always do what's right. I know you will always do what's fair. Now, it's not fair to treat the righteous as if they were unrighteous. And God says, okay, I'll, if you can find 50, I'll, in fact, God says, I'll spare the whole place, the whole city, if you can find 50. And we know how that turned out. And so Abraham appealed to God on the basis of an eternal attribute. God has always been just. He will always be just. It's just part of his character. He cannot be unjust. So Abraham knew that God would indeed always do what was fair. He knew God could not act in a way that was unfair or unjust. So Abraham appealed to God on that basis. And we can appeal to God on that basis as well. When we pray to him, when we make our requests known to him. Well, I'm going to contrast that with Islam. Not that I'm an expert in Islam, but I understand that in Islam, Islam uh, holds that God is not bound to act according to any moral quality. That God is not bound. And so in Islam, their, their view is that God is completely free, completely free, completely sovereign. To do whatever he wills. And he's not bound to act in a particular way. And so he may at times be merciful, but he's not bound to be merciful. He could be unmerciful if he wants to in a particular case. And he might, he, he might at times do what is gracious, but he's not bound to be gracious. He might at times do what is loving, but he's not bound to be loving. And so we might say that... God might do acts of mercy, but he's not merciful. God might do acts of grace, but, but he's not gracious. 
Not, not inherently in his character. God might act with compassion, but he's not by nature a compassionate God. And so it's not that... Uh, and I make this statement here somewhere toward the end. God does not do right because it's right in Islam. Rather, whatever he does is right because he doesn't. It's, it's, the biblical, as we've seen here, we're trying to show is that God will always do what's right because it's right. God will ju- do what's just because it's just. He's governed by that principle. But in Islam, God, whatever God does is right because he does it. And so if he acts unmercifully or uncompassionately, well, you don't have any right to argue with because God did it. And I, that's not a biblical description of God. So in Islam, God is known as the afflictor who sends affliction as well as blessing. The abaser. In Islam, there are 99 names for God. And so this comes from a, a list of those 99 names uh, taken from a website. Na- the names of Allah. He's the abaser, the dishonorer, the humiliator. He gives esteem to whomever he wills. Hence, there is no one to degrade him. He degrades whoever he wills. Hence, there is no one to give him esteem. He's known as the exalter, the one who lowers whoever he wills by his destruction and raises whoever he wills by his endowment. Now, what would be the result of that? If, if God, if you believe that God was the exalter and the abaser, and you didn't know which he was going to be on any given day. And you didn't know which he was going to be as you approached him in, in prayer. Now, is he going to be the humiliator? Or is he going to be the generous and kind God? What, what's he? I don't know. I don't know how he's going to act. He may be the kind God today, like he was yesterday. Or he may be the unkind God today. I, I don't know. I think the result of that would be just sheer fear of God. Just imagine a slave in that condition. Here's a slave, and he doesn't know whether his master is going to be angry with him and lash him if he, if he approaches his master, or if, if his master might be kind. He doesn't know. So what's the result of that? Well, he, he lives in fear. He's afraid of his master. The scriptures teach us that we don't need to live in that kind of fear of God if we we're God's children. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 15... Uh, Paul says, we have not received a spirit of slavery uh, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption uh, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so we can approach God without fear because we know his character is constant. He will always do what's right. He will always do what's loving toward his children. He will always act in a manner of compassionate and gracious. Yet at the same time, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. All right, so he holds both of those ideas together. All right, well, let's go on. Under the Old Testament, well, let's see, uh, how much time have I got left? Ten minutes. Okay, let me just make this point very quickly, then we'll go to this point. Uh The passage, will not the judge of all the earth do right, suggests that God is always just in what he does. So if God will always act in a manner consistent with his own sense of justice, then what he does is always just. There are instances when God acts in a manner that might seem unjust to us. 
But we need just to remember that the judge of all the earth always does what is right or what is just. That doesn't mean that everything we experience is right and just. But what God does is always just. So I ask this question. Was God just or unjust when he took the lives of Nadab and Abihu? Was that, was that just or unjust? And so you remember that story, Nadab and Abihu? Uh, they offer strange fire, Leviticus 10. The Lord is not pleased. He takes their life. Just right there on the spot. Just or unjust? Oh, that's just, isn't it? The wages of sin is death, you know. And so that's, that's a, a righteous response to an unrighteous act. Is God just or unjust when he takes the life of Uzzah? When Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark? Right or wrong on the part of God? Well, that's right, isn't it? He, he acts justly. That's according to justice. Was God just or unjust to instruct Israel to kill all the Amalekites? Men, will, women, children, even their animals. Was that, was that just? Or, now, a lot of people said that's unjust. No. The judge of all the earth will do what's right. He will always do what's right. Now, it may be that we need to acknowledge that God operates on a level far beyond us. That his ways are inscrutable. We trust his love. We trust his mercy. We're all good with that. We all must also learn to trust his justice. And it may be that at times, I, I may not understand how this is just according to God's standards. But if I'm willing to trust His love and trust His goodness and trust His grace, well, sometimes when I have questions, I need, okay, I'll just yield to the justice of God. That's just. may not understand it myself, but the judge of all the earth will do what's right. Is it unjust for God to consign the wicked to an eternity in hell? Is that unjust? Now, a lot of people think that would be unjust. Just wouldn't be right for God to consign people to hell for these, you know, uh, peccadilloes, these puny little sins that people commit. That just wouldn't be right. No, no, that is right. It is just. The judge of all the earth will do what's right. He will always act justly. And so, again, it may just simply be necessary for us to acknowledge that God... Knows a whole lot more than we know. He's a lot wiser than we are. He's infinite in his wisdom and his understanding. And we just yield to his sense of justice. All right, let's, we'll move on to the next point. And the point is this, that the justice of God should be reflected in the way his people deal with one another. If God is just, if God is always fair in the way he deals with people, his people should always be fair in the way they deal with one another. Interesting passage in the book of Jeremiah. Look over there, Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 3. Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Speaking to Israel, of course, to his people. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. There, there, there are sort of twin qualities again. Do justice and righteousness. And to deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. And so a just and righteous God expects his people to be just and righteous as they deal with each other. All right, so let's look at some of those and we'll just uh, go through this. You can look at these passages later if you'd like. We'll take the time to read something really interesting, I think. In the Old Testament, judges were to make rulings based on the law. They were not to take bribes. You know, bribe perverse justice, doesn't it? 
And so here's a man, he's innocent, but if a wealthy man can bribe the judge to make a decision in his favor, you say the bribe perverts, perverts justice. So can't take a bribe. Don't, don't, don't favor a family member. You know, you judge according to the law. If your family member has violated the law, okay, well, you have to judge that justly. Or the poor. Look at Leviticus chapter 19 where uh, they are told to favor neither the poor or the great. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Alright, so here's what the law says. Here's a wealthy man. You don't reward him because of his wealth. No, you don't punish him because of his wealth. You know, some people resent wealth and so they, they take it out on the wealth. No, you judge justly and fairly without taking those kinds of things uh, into consideration. Businessmen were not to have two sets of weights. One accurate, the other inaccurate and used to cheat the buyer. So I'm going to buy a pound of wheat. And so I've got my false weight here. I've got the scales. And so I'm going to put your wheat over here. And i got this. Well, this, uh, this measure is a little light. It's really not a pound. It's less than a pound. And see, that way I can make a little bit more money. No, no. Don't, don't have uh, dishonest weights. Your, your weights and measures are to be accurate. The, the injured could demand retribution, but only to a degree commensurate with the injury inflicted. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and so forth. So Leviticus 24, verse 17, is one of the places where that principle is found. It's found in other places as well. Uh, we're familiar with that. Uh, you get in a fight, somebody knocks your eye out. Okay, you can, you can demand retribution. And so he, lo- he loses his eye, but no more than that. Okay, no more than that. So this puts a restriction on the uh, retribution someone could demand. Exodus chapter 22, there are laws dealing with the restoration of something lost. And so I, I let, let Ben borrow my donkey. You know, and he, he's neglectful and he loses it. Well, he owes me a donkey. You know, and that, that's fair. That's right. That's just. If he's neglectful and somebody comes in and steals it, well, then that, that's dealt with in a just and fair way as well. And we can go on and on. So the, the, the laws in, in the law of Moses... Uh, were given to regulate, you know, to regulate, uh, to uh, make sure that justice was administered. And when God's people failed to administer justice, well, he came in judgment against them. Mary, in the book of Amos, one of the things that God denounces uh, his people for, Israel for, is because they failed to execute justice. Remember how God is interested in lifting the poor and rescuing them from their oppression? Well, in the book of Amos... God condemns his people because the powerful were oppressing the poor and taking advantage of them. So it's in the book of Amos that we're told, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's Amos 5 verse 24. And so all these laws suggest that God's people are to reflect his character in themselves. Since God is just he expects his people to administer justice. Since God deals with people fairly, he expects us to be fair as well. Matthew 7, verse 12, what does that say? That's the golden rule. We paraphrase it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's fair, isn't it? Do to them what you would have them do to you. And that, that goes for everybody. And it does, 
matter whether they're of this race or that race or rich or poor, live in this area or that area. You treat everyone the way you would have them treat you. And then Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, I think it is, and going through verse 10, Owe no man anything except to love one another. Who loves his neighbors fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. There's any other commandment is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And we could elaborate on that. But, but love does no harm. So this idea of being fair to people is one that's uh, established through the scriptures. Well, there's a lot more that we could say about this particular question, this principle, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Sometimes people ask me, do you think you went to heaven? You know, somebody, they'll have a loved one to pass away, to die, and they're concerned about it. You know, they're, they're concerned about their eternal destiny. And they might ask me, do you think he went to heaven? Well, all I know to say is, God's going to get that right. He'll get it right every time. Yeah. If it were up to me, I might not get it right every time. But God will give it right every time. And if a person has done what pleases him, he'll be saved. If not, he won't be. That's all I know to say sometimes is God will be the judge and God will get it right every single time. He will always do what's right. And so we want to live in a way so that when we get to that point, that... Uh, he will do what's right in our case. And we can, go, we can go to heaven and be with him. All right. I got done a couple of minutes early today. I just want you to remember that. <laughs> got done a couple of minutes early. All right. Very good. Appreciate your good attention this morning.